unnecessary so they faith will progress. Yes, you want to strive together for the gospel in one spirit, one mind. Listen to the apostles, maintain the same love, uplift your brothers. Don't just look out for yourself before the interests of others. Oh, our life is nothing but Christ is all. So conduct yourselves worthy of its righteous call. Our life is nothing but Christ is all. So conduct yourselves worthy of its righteous call. Our life is nothing but Christ is all. So conduct yourselves worthy of its righteous call. Our life is nothing but Christ is all. So conduct yourselves worthy. Nope, now I am. I laid that track down last night in the recording studio. Yeah, sure. Sure you did, Doug. Yeah. Um, that would not be true. Um, but I do love Christian hip-hop, and I have no idea why. So I'm, I just it's something that's got into my blood with uh, what we do with Eagle Sports. And um, anyway, so that's why it's playing, because I like it. Hey, uh, grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Philippians, and um, we're going to start in Philippians 1. And my encouragement to you, if you're using the Bibles under your seat, that's page 830. My encouragement to you is um, bring your Bibles, write in your Bibles. We're going to be in Philippians for a while. I would love for you to have it marked up from front to back. Um, If you want to write in the Bibles under your seat, that's great. I'm not sure what good that's going to do you later unless you, well, I guess most of you always sit in the same seat, so I guess your Bible will be all marked up for you. But bring your Bible. Be ready. Those of you who uh, work digitally, that would be great as well. So um, allow me to pray. Lord, thanks for a chance for us to open your word. Uh, I pray that you would um, speak to me and through me. I pray that the words that I say that are meant to be um, would land in the places where you want them to land, that there would be fertile soil, that it would bear fruit. Pray that anything that's not of you would kind of drift away. Thanks for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with all the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of the righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God. Amen? So, uh, a couple things I just want to put in front of you. Um, I said it a couple weeks ago. Um, I cut my teeth, if you will, teaching in um, the Eagle Sports uh, Arena. And um, one thing that I found that I truly enjoy is a little bit of feedback. So it's okay at Grace if you say amen. It's okay at Grace if you clap your hands. It's okay at Grace if you want to express yourself, feel free. So as I'm teaching, I am inviting you to feel the freedom to uh, say what you want to say and do what you want to do. It actually helps me to know that you're actually hearing me 
It just lets me know there's somebody out there and I'm not just talking to myself, which sometimes I do feel that way. Um, I am excited about this series. So first thing I want to tell you is keep something in your Bible. We are going to dig through this entire uh, passage here, but it's going to be in a few minutes. Um, I want to kind of set up the series. I am totally uh, excited about the series. Actually, I have actually been... Um, like shaking all morning. Since the minute I walked in here and people were on the stage walking around praying through the seats, um, I started to pray with them and it began to just, I feel like, uh, uh, I don't know what I feel like. I feel like God is doing something pretty cool. So there's an element of just, I am fired up about this series. I'm fired about, up about what God's doing. Um, we, yeah, see, it works. You know, I know you heard me. Uh, I walked out in the lobby at 8.30. There were some 40 people who were praying for you. And what God was going to do today, that was an invitation I put out there. There was probably 10 or 12 people that were praying um, at 1040 before this service getting ready. And my encouragement to you is come and be a part of that. But there are people that have been praying and praying and praying for this series, praying for grace, praying that God would do something. And I am excited about what God's going to do. And here's what I want you to hear. This study in Philippians, and I, and I don't know if this gets me in trouble for saying it, but I believe this study, more than any other letter in Scripture, has the potential to radically transform our relationships with God and our relationships with one another. This is a book about relationship. It's, it's informational and instructional about relationship. And if we could take what God has in Philippians, and if we could truly sit with it, if we could let it marinate, not like ketchup where you just pour it on a plate and you dip it, but marinate, what do you do with marinade? You soak in it, right? You put with the, the, whatever it is you're marinating, you let it soak, you let it penetrate the, the inner part of it. If we would let the Philippians marinate in us, that I think it could radically transform who we are as husbands, who we are as wives, who we are as friends, who we are as parents, who we are as neighbors, and who we are as the body of Jesus Christ. So I am really excited about the challenge that God has put before us to walk through Philippians. And, and I want to just tell you something. Today's an interesting day for this challenge. Um, I believe that you need to be here. This series is going to take us a little time to get through, but you will not get what God has for you if you are here every third or fourth week. And that's the average attendance of grace. The average person comes to grace once every three weeks. And what I'm telling you is that we are going to walk through this systematically. And if you come every three weeks, you're going to miss major sections of the scripture. So take the challenge in the new year to be here every single week to get what God has for you so that you understand all of what's in Philippians. So today, for instance, we're going to walk through a lot of foundational stuff. If you weren't here this week and then you're here next week, it won't make as much sense. So commit to being here week in and week out. Commit to getting all of what God has for you out of Philippians. I think it could be awesome. We're calling this series A Satisfied Life. The idea is that there is a way to have more joy. There is a way to have more courage. There is a way to have more contentment in your life. And who doesn't want that? Do you want more of those things? Yeah, see, see how it works? I say something, that's perfect. More satisfied life, more joy, more commitment, more courage. And the thing is, as we unpack this, we're going to discover that, that this more satisfaction has nothing to do with circumstances. It has nothing to do with what's going on around. So that we can navigate through good times and bad times and still have this overwhelming sense of joy, this overwhelming sense of courage, this overwhelming sense of satisfaction in our lives if we take what God has for us in Philippians and let it marinate into who we are. I think I might have just used the word marinade there. So I'm going to pray again for this series, and then we're going to dive into it. Lord, I pray for us as a church. We pray as a leadership at Grace that this series would be amazing. 
Not because we want to teach in an amazing way, but because we know that your word can do amazing things. So I pray that we would let the word of God marinate into our very, our very souls, that we would be moved by the words of scripture in such a way that we leave this place different. I love, I love, I love that that was part of Mel's prayer when she was just um, flowing in worship, that we just don't want to leave the same. We want to experience you, we want to experience your word, and we want to be radically changed to be the church and to be individuals that you've called us to be. So as we move into Philippians, guide us, teach us, be our senior pastor. I love the Alcumi used to always say that you are our senior pastor, and that's still true today. Just be our shepherd as we move through Philippians. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're teaching through Philippians for the next several weeks. And what I have to do in order to be a good teacher is I have to kind of lay some foundational work. So what we're about to do is going to feel a little bit academic probably, um, but it's necessary. We need to understand the context of which this letter was written. We need to understand the relational context, the, the societal context. We need to kind of know all those things. And as we know these things... It will help to bring the letter alive. This is a letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. And the more you know about what's going on with them relationally and with, with what's going on, the more it will, um, it will it'll be a bigger letter. It will be a brighter letter. So even after today, as we walk through this foundational stuff, I think you would find if you go home this afternoon and you spend 20 minutes or whatever it takes to read these four short chapters, the book will, will, will jump out to you more. You'll see elements of everything I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes in the letter. It will be a richer sort of experience for you if you have all of the context that's in here. But one thing that's for sure, if you took the, the, the letter of Philippians and you took all of Paul's other letters, there's something dramatically different about this letter. This letter has no censors in it. In other words, there's no um, moment in time where, where Paul is officially reprimanding anybody. It's not a rebuke. It's not a big theological study. If you took Romans that Paul wrote and you took Philippians, they look, feel very, very different. And the reasons for that are going to make sense in just a few minutes. But, but this book is actually known as the letter of joy. So for centuries, it's been called the letter of joy. Now, I find that fascinating because what we do know is that Paul is in prison when he's writing this. Now, best guess is he's in prison in Rome, although we don't know that for sure. Um, the assumption is, for most scholars, is he's in a Roman prison. And I love some of the stuff I read was like, well, it wasn't that bad. He was just on house arrest. And I kind of chuckle, like, I'm guessing whoever wrote that wasn't in prison. Like, oh, I'm sure it wasn't that bad. I mean, anytime you're incarcerated, it's probably not a good thing. And you're probably not feeling great about those circumstances. But we also know from history that being a Christian and being a prisoner in Rome, think Colosseum, think lions, you get in the picture, like, I'm pretty sure it was a little unsettling to be a prisoner, whether it was house arrest or anywhere. I'm sure that there was a level of being uncomfortable. And so in that situation, Paul writes the letter of joy. And so I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking what a cool picture that is for me. Because you see, I struggle to have joy when I'm hungry. No, really, I do. I, I am a grouchy person when I'm hungry. I struggle to have joy when I don't get to watch the TV show that I want to watch. We're a one TV family. I know that's shocking. But guess what? I have to, there's a lot of times where I want to watch the game, and somebody's watching something else, and that can make me grow. I struggle with joy in the smallest of things. If I were in prison writing a letter, it probably wouldn't feel like this letter, it probably wouldn't go down through the ages, is the letter of joy. But Paul has the ability, again, to rise above his circumstances and to write the letter of joy from a prison in Rome. 
So it's a letter of joy. And the other thing that we need to understand is that the relationship that Paul has with the church of Philippi is very different. I think it's safe to say that this is his favorite church. Now, I don't know if apostles, I don't know if church planters are allowed to have favorite churches anymore than I know if parents are allowed to have favorite children. I have a favorite daughter, but I'm allowed to because I have one, right? So it, 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 I don't know if it's a good thing, but it's safe to say that this is Paul's favorite church. This actually has become, through whatever circumstances, Paul's sending church. It's his home church. And the, the best way I can kind of describe that is through our relationship with Rob and May. Many of you have met Rob and May. They're part of our, our impact um, campaign. They do work in Muslim contexts in a pretty profound way. But Rob and May work with churches all over the country. They work with churches literally all over the world. But they have pioneered with a group of other people this idea that they can go into closed countries. And by closed, I mean countries where you can't go in and say, hey, I'm here to tell you about Jesus because you go to jail. They're closed to the message of Christ, almost always in a Muslim context. And they, they go in and they do business legitimate, full-on, large-scale, in some cases, manufacturing, but they do business, and then they become part of the infrastructure. They become part of the economic structure. They become part of the social structure, and they live their lives as Christians. They live their lives with Jesus front and center, and they're seeing this amazing evangelistic fruit because people see something different in the way they honor God and the way they do business and their, their ethics and their love for people. And, and so they're seeing the, 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 a movement of God amongst the Muslim people that's pretty unprecedented. All that to say, Rob and May have made this their home church. We are their sending church. They've bought a house here in this area so that when they come back for rest, when they come back to be replenished, when they come back to be with their relational network, this is where they come. And it was similar for Paul. Paul had all of these different places where he had influence and he was having a huge impact all over the world. But for some reason, the church in Philippi was Paul's home church. So he's writing a letter to his friends. He's writing a letter to his home church. And it's important for us to know that. So... The other thing we need to understand, I know this is a lot, but just stay with me because it all comes together as we, as we study Philippians. Is it, is it, hi, how are you? So there are, there, the whole idea of letter writing in the Greco-Roman world was really an art. It really was an art form. This was the major way of communication. And I think it's kind of a lost art on, on us, but when I was in school, I remember learning how to write a business letter. You remember how a business letter would work and there was how you would do the address and how you'd do the salutation. But, but if I were to hand you a letter right now that was a business letter, you would know just from the form the, the content of the letter without even reading it, that this is a business letter, that a business letter would look different than a letter of friendship or, or, or a family written letter. And those were the three different categories of letters in the Greco-Roman world. There was hierarchical letters, which would be from a boss to a subordinate or from an apostle to the church. And so some of Paul's letters have this hierarchical form to them. They're written in this, this way that any expert of the day would be able to look at it and know right away what kind of letter this is. Right? And then there were letters of friendship that were written to people who had some type of mutual connection. And then there were family letters. This is, in form and flow, a letter of friendship. It's not meant to be hierarchical. It's not Paul, who was an apostle, who is an apostle. But in this case, he's not writing from that position. He's not writing a, a hierarchical letter. He's writing a letter of friendship. And then we have to understand, well, what does it mean to be a friend? And this is so important for us to get. Because friendship in the Greco-Roman world meant something very different than what friendship means in our culture. So in our culture, friendship is, is usually seasonal. Most of us could own that we have 
friends now that maybe weren't our friends a decade ago, that maybe weren't our friends 30 years ago, that there's seasons of different groups of people that are friends. And a lot of times that's because the relationships are, there's something mutual that's came together. We worked together, we went to school together, we had some kind of common bond. Um, that's the other thing that sometimes ties people together. We're good acquaintances because we go to church together. We're good acquaintances because we all love Michigan State, especially this year. We're all good acquaintances because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that. How did I know you would clap? It's all good, but there's something that just kind of draws us together. But it's more about acquaintance than it is friendship. In the Greco-Roman world, when you made a commitment to be friends, you made a commitment to be friends. It actually became contractual. They actually, people would actually enter into a verbal covenant with each other that they were going to share what they had. They were going to share what they had, mutual sharing of goods and possessions, of ideas, of, of process, that there was this, this desire to be in something more, something that's kind of foreign to us in the way we do life. And so there's this, this beautiful connection of deep, heartfelt friendship. Our friendships tend to be seasonal, tend to be mutual, or even needs-based. Like, I need something from you, so you're my friend. And I know that sounds bad, but if we're really honest with ourselves, a lot of times that's what draws us towards each other. It's, and sometimes the need can be mutual, but it's, but it's need-based. So the first challenge we can take from this is that we need to foster that type of friendship in our life. So we talk here at Grace about six essentials. You've heard us put the six essentials up there before. Um, these are elements of a whole that help you to grow spiritually. You need to have all six of these things, all six of these essentials in your life if you want to grow spiritually. We say that you need to gather. I already talked about it. You need to make a commitment to be here, to gather together, that something happens in big church that we can't really understand completely, but in corporate worship and in being together creates a connection. You need to gather. You need to connect. You need to serve. You need to have influence. Tell people about your faith. You need to have a heart of devotion towards God, and you need to have a heart of generosity. Well, this letter is a letter between friends, and it serves as an instruction manual and an inspirational um, piece of writing to help us understand the power of being connected, that we have to be connected with one another if we're going to survive. Let me just be as clear as I can be as your pastor, as one of your pastors. You will not survive in your Christian walk with God if you are not connected to other believers. You will not grow unless you are connected in the way that Philippians talks about, unless you have something more than acquaintance. Now, some of you can say, well, I'm connected. I come to church all the time. I know lots of you. There's something more going on here that you desperately need. This is written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, Jesus, after his resurrection, actually came to Paul and taught Paul how to be who Paul is. Jesus himself, in resurrected form, came and ministered and taught Paul. That guy needed this type of connection in order to thrive and grow in his walk with Jesus. If the Apostle Paul needed it, how much more so you and I. You desperately need to grab what you can grab from Philippians and be inspired to be pushed towards, to catch a vision for and then to pray for this type of connection in your life it is a requirement of growing spiritually so I've been coming to grace for about 20 years um, I've not been on staff for nearly that long but when I first started coming here God used three different um, messages if you will or three different ways of really 
pounding this into my head. Actually, I don't know if it's that way for you, but that's how God usually talks to me. If I pay attention, I'm getting the same message from multiple directions, and I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to pay attention to this. Yeah, because I'm kind of thick-headed, so God has to come at it from all different ways. But when God's trying to help me to understand what does it mean to be connected, there's three different things going on. The first thing is I started hanging out with Al Coonley. And if any of you remember Al Coonley, he was a pastor here. Um, If Al Coonley was your friend, you knew it. If Al Coonley was your friend, you knew it because he cared for you in a way that few people did. He gave to you in a way that few people did. He listened to you in a way that few people did. He was one of the first people to ever write a substantial check to Eagle Sports. Not that that's what made him a friend, but I remember. I didn't ask for it, but it was just out out of him just being with me and praying. He just gave me the check, and I just remember being so blown away, sharing in mutual stuff. Al Coonley taught me more about being a friend than maybe anybody else ever has, and the thing that was so inspiring about Al is that Al would introduce me to friends, and he would say, yeah, we've been friends for 40 years. We've been friends for 50 years, and I would be dumbfounded by that. I wasn't even that old yet, but I didn't have any friends like that. I had acquaintances, but I really didn't have any friends that I had done life with decade after decade after decade. I remember being challenged, like, what does it mean to do life with certain people? What does it mean to be committed to people in such a way that you're actually finishing the race with them? And then along came the Promise Keepers movement about that same time. And if those of you don't remember Promise Keepers, it was a men's movement and they would, they would do these big events in stadium. And it was very weird. They could get 40, 50,000 guys all in a stadium and then we would all cry, which I never have figured out how you can get 40,000 men to cry at the same time. But they got us to understand you need accountability with other men. You need to be, and they called these things accountability groups. I always hated that name because there was much more going on than accountability. But that began this process of me doing life with just a few guys, of sitting at a table and sharing what God was doing in our lives and being challenged. And then the third thing that happens, I went to a conference and the conference was all about uh, David and Saul and about having this this type of friendship. And I remember walking out in the parking lot that day and Scott Sean was standing in front of me. And I remember asking Scott, would you be that person? Could we have that kind of relationship? Could we be that kind of friends? Could we actually have a covenant with each other that says that we're going to finish the race together? And you know what? That was scary. That was so scary because it was like, it was like asking somebody to go steady. I mean, <laughs> what if they say no, right? I mean, it would have been embarrassing to be standing in that parking lot and Scott be like, yeah, thanks but no thanks. <laughs> Right? I mean, it was scary. But God was prompting me to move towards God. And guess what? 20 years later, we are still best of friends. We still do life together. And there have been seasons of time. Yeah. There have been seasons of time where we didn't see things eye to eye. There's been some real tension in our relationship. And I had to go back in my mind to that day in that parking lot and say, no, we made a commitment. That we are going to journey through the crap and we are going to be friends till the day that we die. And that commitment has held us together. Otherwise, Scott would just be another seasonal friend, another casual friend. But it's the guys like Scott and Dan Bennett and Mike Mancinelli that meet with me regularly, that help me to understand the power of being connected, the power of what's described in Philippians as being integral, necessary for you to thrive and grow in the Lord. My encouragement to you as Philippians marinates with you, one of the things that I would pray for is that we as a body, we as a church, would be inspired to be connected in this type of way. Not as acquaintances, but truly connected to each other in a way that we see described in Philippians. So this is an amazing letter of friendship. It's, 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 it's phenomenal when you see the, this template of friendship that's over it. But it's also a letter of exhortation. 
And what does that mean? Uh, to, be, to be someone who, uh, to exhortation, I mean, it's, it's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter of, of persuasion. It's kind of a bit of an admonishing, although we always think of admonishing in a, in a bad light, like, like scolding somebody, but it's admonishing in the best of terms. It's like this, is this encouraging somebody to do something in an urgent sort of way. When I was writing this all down, I was trying to think, like, what's the best way to describe it? The best way for me to get um, exhortation is like a supremely motivating coach. Like if you, the best of the best coaches who can give that speech that causes a team to go out and be more than they ever could be, that, that like calling something out of a team, you know, that extremely motivating coach is, is the, the exhortation that we're looking for here. So we do something here at Grace called Leading Edge, and for the last eight years, we spend seven to nine months with a small group of people doing discipleship. Uh, through, it's pretty intentional, and at the end of this time, we go to something called High Adventure Camp. I'm not sure why we call it High Adventure Camp, other than we got that name from places that have mountains, and they would do their camp in the High Adventure. So we're in Michigan, so we should call it Flat Adventure Camp. But anyway, we still call it High Adventure Camp, and we go, and it's meant to be this celebration at the end of the year. And one of the things we do is we do what's called a high ropes course. And lots of you probably had a chance to do this, but you climb up on these poles, and you walk on wires, and you do things that you normally wouldn't do. Well, one of the things we do is called the stand, and a picture's going to come up, and this is a telephone pole. You can see the one beside there is another one of telephone poles. That one's, I think, 22 feet high, if I remember right. But you climb up on these little tiny pegs, you get to the top of the pole, and the pole's probably this big around, and you stand up on the pole. That in itself is, is an accomplishment. It is hard to do, to balance yourself, to figure out how to get up, to figure out how to stand up on the pole. And then, just to make matters worse, you jump. You jump off the pole and you try to catch the trapeze. If you look to the left there, you can see the trapeze a little bit. Um, that's Cindy Nicholson. Way you go, Cindy. But here's what happens. Every year, when we get to camp, people stand at the bottom of those poles and they say, uh-uh, no way. I can't do it. There is no way I would ever do that. And then their friends are there, and their friends would say, you can do it. You know, there's, there, there's a harness on her. You can't really see it. It's, it. You know, it's a camp. They're not allowed to kill people. So the safety factor is there, but it's scary. I mean, you're, when you're up on that pole, your knees literally are shaking. But people are like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then their friends come around, and their friends say, you can do it. You can do this. You have what it takes. You can do it. And suddenly, for some people, it's just a matter of climbing up to the top of the pole. They don't even ever stand, but they climb to the top of the pole. They do more than they ever thought that they could when we get done and we come back into the room and we're talking about it, they always say, it was because of the encouragement of the people around me. It's because they said I could do it. It's because they were exhorting me to do something more than I thought I could. I went up and I did more than I ever believed I could. And they have this sense of accomplishment. And I'm always perplexed. Like, why don't we do that in the church? Why don't we stand behind each other and say, you can do this. You got what it takes. You can. And this is silly. We're climbing a pole and jumping. Like, I'm not sure. It, it's silly. But if we brought that same mentality into the church, if we were people of exhortation, if we actually exhorted one, you can do this. We would accomplish more. If we lived our lives connected to one another in this true friendship described in Philippians, and we exhorted one another, we would accomplish more than we ever imagined we could accomplish. We would do more than we ever thought we could. The people that, that are around you, you all know that. I love this. You guys should clap more often. This is great. Exhortation pushes us to do more than we ever ask or imagine. So, what we're going to do, the passage of scripture that comes to mind when I think about this is Hebrews 10.24. Hebrews 10.24 says, it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us think about it. 
Let us actually be mindful as we know each other because we're now connected in true friendship. What does it look like for me to come along, Stacy Jakira, and know what it means for me to exhort her to accomplish more than she ever thought that she could? Let us consider ways to exhort one another, to spur each other on, to do more than we ever thought that we could. So with all of this context, now you know this is what the letter's about. It's a letter of friendship. It's a letter of exhortation. It's got a whole different feel than any of Paul's other letters. With all of that context, now for the next several weeks, we're going to unpack this letter. And it's going to be more alive to us because we're going to know what's going on. So now's where you grab your Bibles again and open up to Philippians chapter 1. And we are going to talk about these first 11 verses with all of that context in mind. You got it? Okay, he's got it. Philippians 1. 1 through 11. It says, I, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with all those overseers and the deacons. So I don't know if you know that, but when you read scripture, there are times in your life where it should shock you. There are times in your life where you read something and it should rock you. You should like be gripping the chair with your fingernails like oh my god and that's what happened to me when I started to figure out what I was going to teach this I'm four words into a whole letter that I have to teach and I'm already sort of like wow what am I going to do with that because you know what the fourth word in this is the fourth word is servant and you know what the word servant really means it means slave and whoever interpreted the NIV they were just trying to be kind to you they were trying to find the most palatable word they could find so they picked servant because we think a servant, we think, oh, you have people over to your house and you pick a good meal and you're a servant to them. Or, you know, we, we, we serve, we go out in the parking lot and we serve. The word is slave. The word is slave and it means to be a slave. It means to be owned by somebody else. It means that you do not have a choice in what you do. If you are a slave, you do what the master tells you. And I know that this is not a palatable word. I know that it, it stirs deep things in us. And, and Paul is not endorsing slavery. We've already, we talked about that just a few weeks ago. But Paul is saying, I am a slave to Jesus. If Jesus says go, I go. If Jesus says stay, I stay. If Jesus says stop, I stop. If Jesus says say it, I say it. I am a slave to the master. And I'm reading this and thinking, I do what I want to do. I am a self-absorbed guy. I need to understand as your pastor, as your friend, what does it mean to be a slave? We could stop there. This could be the sermon of the day. What does it mean to be a slave to Christ? So Paul says, so Paul's writing this letter. He's probably dictating to Timothy. So he says, Timothy and I are here and we are slaves to Jesus Christ. And then he does this amazing thing. He says to all of God's holy people, he actually uses the word saint there in Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Paul is actually modeling something that's going to be a part of the rest of this letter. When you read a Paul letter, he always summarizes the letter in his opening. It's always, if you will, an outline of what's in the coming. This is true as well here. So Paul says, I'm a slave. He humbles himself, and then he holds the people he's talking to in high esteem, and he says to them, you are the saints. Big difference. One's being called a saint, one's being called a slave, and then he calls them by their titles, overseers, deacons. He, he, he recognized they have a positional authority within the church, and he makes sure to recognize their position. So then later in Philippians in chapter 2, he says this. He says, do nothing out of selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself 
Don't look to your own personal interests, but look to the interests of others. Paul is modeling this humbling of himself and lifting up the other parter. He's actually modeling. And if you look at all of Paul's letters, they're not his way. Sometimes Paul says, look, I'm the apostle. God has called me to tell you this, and I'm telling you, you need to do this. But in this case, he's writing to friends, and he makes sure to humble himself and to lift the other ones up. It's a very cool thing. So look at verse 3. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Jump down to verse 7. It says, it is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. Isn't that cool? I have you in my heart. He's talking about this affection of friendship. He's, he's describing what he feels for them, which is really a beautiful picture. I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains, defending, or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me that we're doing this together, he's saying. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you see the richness of his conversation. Do you see that we're being invited in to a deep and intimate friendship conversation? I mean, who writes like this? Who uses this kind of word to talk about friendship? It's an amazing picture. And so Paul says, I thank God for your partnership. The word partnership there is the word we talked about a few weeks ago, koinonia. The first time we see koinonia in the New Testament is in Acts when it talks about all the people came together and sat under the apostles' teaching and shared everything they had. Their, their, their actual possessions were shared. So Paul's not just saying, hey, you've been a good support to me. He's saying, thank you for sharing in your possessions as I have shared in my possessions. Thank you for giving and receiving. Thank you that, that I know that you are going to bring your, your materials uh, possessions to me as part of it. And we see this play out in the letter, that there is this sharing of goods and services that, that help to bond them together. It's part of their covenant relationship. Look at verse 6. He says, I have you in my heart and I long for you. And he says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's saying, see that pole? You can climb it. You can climb to the top of that pole and you can jump out and grab that trapeze. He's exhorting them. He's saying, look, God hasn't abandoned you. God started something. The living God is inside of you. The living God is moving in your spirit. The living God is in you and he's not going to abandon you. He's going to see it through to completion. He's going to make you the person that he's called you to be. He's describing this process we call sanctification. We are a mosaic of people striving to live like Jesus, to represent Jesus more and more and more and more. We are being sanctified, changed from the inside out. And Paul's saying, Stay with it. Stay at it because you can be more than you ever thought you could because the living God is in you transforming you into the person that he wants you to be. It's a beautiful picture of exhortation. So he exhorts them to be more than they can and then he tells them how that he prays for them. And I just preached on this on um, December 15th so if you weren't here maybe you get the CD and I'll, I unpack these, these three verses a lot more. Um, but, but he prays for them. And I said it when I taught on this, but it really hit me. Um, since I taught this, uh, if I pray for one of our ministry partners or if I pray for one of you specifically, uh, a lot of times I'll send an email or a little card to say, hey, I prayed for you. And I used to, that used to be what I'd said. Hey, I prayed for you today. And since I've studied this and taught it, um, God has put it on my heart to tell people how I pray for them. And you know what it's made me do? It's made me actually be more careful about how I pray for them. It's actually caused me to ask God, like, how should I, if I'm going to pray for Paula, well, God, what should I pray for Paula? What would you have me pray for Paula? 
If I'm going to pray for Scott Schoen, if I'm going to pray for Robin May, if I'm going to pray for the Seclunas, God, what is he going to pray? And sometimes, whatever God puts on my heart to pray for them, then I pray that. And then I type in my email, hey, Jeremy, we prayed for you. I prayed for you today, and I prayed that you would be strong and courageous. I prayed that as you go to India and you do the work that God has called you to do, that you would have a real sense of God's presence in your life. Now, I don't know what happens there, but my guess is if I'm listening to God and I'm praying what God puts on my heart, and then he's looking at the letter, that it's going to be exactly what he needed in that moment to say, how did he know to pray that? I didn't know anything, but I listened to God, and it used to be it was easy for me to say, hey, I prayed for you, because I'd pray kind of the same thing for everybody. I know that's not a good confession, but it's the truth. And so I just started listening to God. My encouragement to you is do the same thing. You know why? Because that's exhorting one another to accomplish more than you ever thought you could. When you come up to somebody and you say, hey, God put you on my heart, and I've been praying that, it will encourage people to be more than they thought they could. So yesterday morning, I came into the church at 830, and there were 35, 40 people sitting in the, in the library praying for Bob and Victoria Coyne. Bob went in for a very minor problem in the hospital two months ago. He's still in the hospital. He's having a really, really rough time in ICU, but it's been a horrible two months for the Coins. They decided to meet here, and when the prayer was done after an hour, hour and a half or something, I heard Victoria praise what she prayed. God, thank you for encouraging me. Thank you for reminding me how much you love me. Thank you for the prayers of my friends that have held me up. It was an amazing picture of what happens when we actually pray specifically for one another. It was really, really very much blessed me. So anyway, Paul says, I pray for you. And this is what I pray. So I'm in verse 9 if you're trying to keep up with me. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. Remember, knowledge is not head knowledge, but this deep understanding of who God is. It says, I pray that your love may abound more and more knowledge and depth of insight. Depth of insight, we defined as a penetrating mental vision. It's seeing into the inner character. It's apprehending the true nature of something. Paul is saying, I pray that you would fall in love with God. I pray that you would know who your heavenly father is. I pray that deep down inside that you would know how much he loves you. I pray that you would know the depth of how much God has done for you. I pray that more and more and more your understanding of who God is and all God has done was constantly growing. Why would he pray that? Well, he tells them why. He says, I pray that you'll know God more so that you may be able to discern what is best, may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God, to make God known. He says, I pray that you will grow more and more in understanding God's love so that you may be able to discern. Be able to discern. It basically just means so that you will know what God wants from you. If we grow in our understanding, if we have more and more knowledge of God, if we really comprehend and, and allow the, the knowledge of God's love for us to marinate in us and to change who we are, then we will know what God wants us to do. We will know how to respond to our children when we're angry. We'll know how to respond to our wives. We'll know how to respond to our neighbors. We'll know how to respond to a church, as a church when there's needs in front of us. It will help us to discern. It all comes back to knowing God more. It helps us to discern. And then he says, so that you'll be pure and blameless. When you read the word blameless in the New Testament, more often than not, what it means is to be, uh, to not cause someone else to stumble. You see, I can live my life in such a way that causes my children to stumble. That I can actually live in such a way that creates bitterness and anger in them and causes them to stumble. You know, the, the seeds of rebellion are almost always rooted in hypocrisy. 
The seeds of rebellion are almost always rooted in hypocrisy. So if I say to my kid, do this, don't do that. If I stand over my kid and say, stop yelling, guess what? There's a little bit of hypocrisy in that, right? I'm yelling at them to stop yelling. Over time, your kids will become aware of that. And it'll set them in motion. So we need to be careful. And it doesn't mean that, that your kids aren't, you can do all things right and your kids can still make some mistakes. But what, what Paul is praying for is that you would be blameless, that your behavior won't cause other people to stumble. As a shepherd, as a pastor of this church, if I have a moral failure, it can cause people within this body to walk away from their faith. It can cause people to stumble. And he's saying, no, no, no. Be right before God. Make sure you're walking with God so your behavior does not cause someone else to stumble. Now, he's not saying be perfect because remember, this is the same guy that wrote, I sin, I, I do things I don't want to do. I am the chief of sinners. And then he wasn't talking in past tense. He's talking in present tense. Paul knows you're still going to screw up. But he's talking about living this authentic, real life before people and growing in the Lord and revealing who you are and allowing people to be on that journey with you and not living lives of hypocrisy, something that Jesus had a lot to say about. So he prays that we know God more so that we know what God wants. He prays that we know God more so that we would be blameless. And then he prays that we would know God more so that we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. What is the fruit of righteousness? Well, we know the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. So there's this element of, of our demeanor that comes out. But the fruit of righteousness that Paul's talking about here is actually that we would do justice, that we would love others. The fruit of righteousness is that we would see injustice and that we would step into it. So it means that you see the, the plight of, of uh, human trafficking and as a church that we would step into human trafficking and try to have a, a role in helping to end human trafficking. Wherever there's injustice that we are moved by the heart of God to step into it. The, the homelessness, the crisis of homelessness could be about abortion. There's so many different places where we have an opportunity to step into injustice as the church of Jesus Christ and be about it. But the, the thing that I love about this is, is we learn to love God more if we really understand who God is, God gives us an understanding of his will for us, and then he calls us to step into injustice in ways that have an impact. We'll know what God wants us to do, and our fruit of righteousness will be that we actually do it. Does that make sense? Our fruit of righteousness is that we actually are obedient, that we actually step into what it is that God wants us to do. This series from Philippians. This series is called A Satisfied Life, that you would have more joy, more contentment, more courage. And for the next few weeks, we get a chance to sit with Paul and hear an intimate conversation that he's having with his closest friends, where he encourages their friendship, where he talks about the depth of their friendship, and he explains to them in detail how it is that they can live in such a way to enrich their friendships. It's inspirational and it's instructional of how we can live in a way to connect with one another, to exhort one another, to be all that God has called us to be. This series has the, the ability to radically transform who we are as people, and who we are as a church. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. So there is a passage of Scripture in Hebrews. It says this. It says, the Word of God is alive and active. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? The Word of God is alive and active. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to penetrate and even divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts, the attitude of the heart. The word of God is like surgery. 
And guess what? Surgery hurts. Surgery can be painful. If we really allow this book to marinate, if we really allow this book to do what God wants to do, there will be times where we will have to sit back in our chair and ask the question, really? When we hear the word, I, Paul, a slave, then maybe we just stop there and we say, am I really a slave to what God wants? Do I really believe that I am am required to do the thing that God has called me to do? Or do I think that I have my own choice? The word of God is active, it's alive, and it should move us. And as we move into this series, I pray that it would mess you up. I pray that there are times where you're like, God, I don't know what to do with this because God knows what you're supposed to do with it. So stay with us. Stay in this series. I prayed, God, what do you want this week? And I think what God wanted me to do was to hopefully encourage you that this series can be amazing for all of us. This series can radically transform who you are. Not because I'm clever. Because the word of God is alive and active. And God desires to do something through this study in each and every one of you. Let me pray. Lord, (laughs) thank you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for this amazing letter, this letter of friendship. Thank you that 20 years ago you set me on a path of um, (laughs) sitting with Philippians. I go back to Philippians multiple times a year. I sit with Philippians. Philippians is... It's just in me, and I pray that it would be in us. I pray that we would be inspired and instructed by your alive and active word as we become the people you've called us to be. Lord, we do not want to play church. We want to be your church. Thanks for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give you a few announcements just because it's necessary. Um, It says here to introduce myself. I'm Doug Kempton. I work here at Grace. Um, Baptism right after this service. A lot of you came down and talked to me last week uh, after we did the baptisms that we had. We had six baptisms last week. And whenever we do baptism, some of you feel stirred by God and say, I think I need to do that. Well, guess what? If you are a slave to Jesus, do I need to say anything else? If you are a slave to Jesus and God has nudged you to get baptized, then go to the class and get baptized. You don't need to hear me tell you to do it. Do it because you're a slave. You don't have a choice, and that's what God wants from you. So be obedient. Follow the promptings of God. Go upstairs. Sit down with Chris. um, Sit through the class, and we'll make sure that you get baptized this month, which is an act of obedience that all of us are supposed to do. There is a... um, movement of prayer that's happening around here that we are very excited about. I talked a little bit about the people that showed up. Yeah, you can clap for that anytime. Um, there are people that meet uh, before the services from now on. We're going to meet at 8.30 or at 10.40. I encourage you to come and just pray with us and to come in here sort of already exhaled, already ready for what God has for you. So come to either of those two prayer times. So 9.30 if you're coming, sorry, 8.30 if you're coming to the 9 o'clock uh, 1040 if you're coming to the 1110. We just meet right on the landing in the, um, in the lobby there, gather together, uh, pray together, pray that God would uh, move in our midst. I think God's going to honor that in a pretty powerful way. Um, we ask you to set your alarms for 930 a.m. every day. We gather together as a staff. We pray for you. We ask that you would pray for us. I was talking to somebody this week that said they were in the grocery store. Their phone beeped. They just 
Said a prayer right there as they were pushing their cart. You don't have to go into your prayer closet. You don't even have to kneel in the grocery store. You don't have to bring any undue attention to yourself because if you just say, Lord, be with grace, do great things at grace, be with the leadership at grace, protect grace, uh, that's enough. And I have this picture of a thousand people. I don't know why I keep thinking a thousand, but a thousand people every day at 930 praying for grace. I just think it could be very profound. I think God will show up in that. So... Set your alarms, set your smartphones. It also gives you a great chance to talk to people because your alarm's going to go off. Maybe go, what was that? And you say, well, our church prays at 930. You want to pray with me? It'll just open up an easy conversation for you amongst people. And then next week, um, so I am asking you to be here next Sunday at 7 o'clock. I want everyone who calls Grace their home church, who is a regular attender, to be here because we want to pray through every nook and cranny of this building. We want to walk through the building and just want to pray in the new year for a fresh movement of God amongst us. So we're going to walk the building and I would like us to have enough people that we could surround the campus. Now, I don't know how many people that would take, somebody that's smarter than me, a mathematician can figure it out, but, but I want us to surround the campus. So if you're worried about the cold, we'll let you stay inside, that's fine. But what I'd like to do is come, walk through the building, pray. I want the My Father's Business people to all come in a group and we're going to go down with you and pray in My Father's Business. I want the, the um, Covenant people to be here together and we're going to go pray at Covenant. I want the Grace Counseling Center to be here. I've always talk, already talked to Tim and he's going to come and bring his team and then we'll go over with them and we'll pray and then we'll come back in here and we'll have a time of corporate prayer and then I'd like to go outside as a way of closing and just surround this campus. Maybe we won't fit all the way around the campus but we can certainly walk around the campus and we're going to pray and I don't know for sure why God has put it on our hearts to do this but he has and we are and I want you to be a part of it because I think it's going to be an awesome way for us to launch into the coming year. So that is a great question. 7 p.m. So it's, it's a listening, oh, yeah, very, very, good catch there. So we're going to do church on Sunday, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to do this prayer evening. It's going to be another, we call these a listening room. But my encouragement to you is I want to fill the house, because we all need to be here for what God is doing in that. Um, and then with Tuesdays at Grace, just so you know, uh, we are teaching Philippians, which I'm excited about, and we also are seeing that God is moving through Alpha and doing some cool things. So what we're saying to you is um, come bring a friend on the 21st to a free dinner, and I hope that we don't have enough food. Honestly, I hope that so many people show up that we just have to go in the room and, and applaud that God is doing something. And, Maybe somebody will pray over it, like five loaves and seven fishes. I'm not sure quite there yet, but we'll do whatever we have to do. But I hope that the crowd is so big that we don't know what to do with it. Um, but my encouragement to you is just come and see. Come and see. It's pretty straightforward. It's a free dinner. It's a great invitation for you with your friend. You don't have to get them to lock into an 11-week or 10-week commitment. You just say, come. It's just going to be dinner, and we'll see if this is something that resonates with you. Some people will go to Philippians. Some people will go to Alpha. But we're going to have a great movement of God in the Tuesday night ministry. If you're part of the AM study, which is the women's study and the men's AM study, they're actually starting the week prior to that, which I think will be the 14th. I'm looking at Paula. She's shaking her head. Yes, so it's the 14th. Okay, I'm going to pray Philippians 1.9 over us as a way of closing. And this is our prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Lord, I pray that as we study Philippians, that our love for you will abound more and more, that we would live into the great commandment to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and because of that, be able to love others as ourselves. Lord, 
Help that to be the mantra of this church, that we would love you more and more and more and more. Help that to be who we are as a church. Lord, I pray for the people who are here, who are struggling, even as I talk about friendship, as I talk about relationship, and they feel a sense of loneliness, a sense of hurt. Lord, I pray that you would um, prompt them to come down and allow the prayer warriors that we have down here up front to pray with them and to pray for them, people who are struggling with anything, that they would feel the courage and the strength to come down after this service and ask for prayer would be a good thing. Lord, thank you for the worship that we had today. Thank you for your word that is alive and active. Thank you that we get to be the church on this corner doing what you've called us to do. Lord, we pray for safety as people navigate the upcoming storm. Pray that they can all find their snow shovels or snow blowers. In Jesus' name, amen. Be safe. God bless.